Well, welcome back to The Black Madonna Speaks with me, your host, Stephanie Georgiev. Thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with me. And for those who have subscribed, thank you. And a special thanks to my Patreon supporters, especially Linda Reinschild, Gerilyn Brousseau, Hetian Grobler, and Jennifer Johnson Lee, who sustained generosity and patience these last several years has made my writings as well as this podcast possible. I want to give a shout out to Janie Newton, one of my newest Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your generosity. I so look forward to sharing this incredible journey with you. For those of you who would like to support the podcast, please visit Patreon at The Black Madonna Speaks for more information on how to do that. And also, please spread the word. Share with your friends whom you think would benefit from this timely and nourishing exploration. For those of you who are following the episodes of the podcast in order, the segment we covered last episode was on the Knights Templar. As I have said frequently, one of the most interesting themes of the Black Madonnas of Europe is how the Knights Templar brought these images back from their missions in the Holy Land and placed them along the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. Honestly, the Knights Templar could have an entire channel dedicated to them, particularly in relation to their esoteric purposes. While much has been written and covered through various scholarly, fictional, and conspiratorial literature, as well as documentaries and entertainment, I focus more on the insights of Rudolf Steiner and similar themes in terms of understanding this influential group of warrior monks from the High Middle Ages. The key takeaways were that the Templars sought to create a culture in Europe that could contain the Christ. In particular, a non-Roman church. Their main focus was on instituting freedom when it came to spirituality and the original intent of the Christ mystery. In later episodes, I will look at Constantine the Great and his influence as well as the Byzantine Church's impact on both. Christianity and the proliferation of Black Madonnas from this region, Byzantium, and the history surrounding it, I can tell you it's absolutely fascinating and a topic that not is in what I would call the Western consciousness, but it is very important and actually fascinating history all at the same time. For now, what is important to consider is that Constantine was not exactly friendly to Christianity in the broadest sense. In fact, his famous Edict of Milan that is recognized as the sparking of legitimacy and spread of Christianity within the Roman Empire as well as the earth, many contemporaries in the Christian movement at that time were not happy about his actions. 
Constantine sought to Romanize Christianity, basically to put Christianity as a movement and a spiritual practice into the materialistic structures of the Roman Empire. This supposed action that helped get him sainted and credited with the flourishing of the Christian religion effectively stamped out the recognition of or even mention of Christ and the mysteries surrounding the Christ mission. Christianity is about universalism, the universal equality of humanity, and the unconditional love from which Christ came. One of the messages of Christ was how the spiritual world feels, thinks, and serves humanity out of incomprehensible, and incomprehensible meaning to us humans who are very conditional about the way we love, but very real, deep love. The love, agape is actually a better term as the word love in English is over and misused. Agape is where the universe is transforming towards. Our original task as humans was to facilitate this transformation, the transformation of the cosmos of wisdom into a cosmos of love. This is why we were given freedom, because in order to love, one must have freedom to choose. Romanism and materialism are all about hierarchy, earthly power, and no freedom for a majority of the human community. In our era of atheism, I often ponder how it is actually the institutions of religion that people reject, specifically the institutions set in motion by Constantine, not the reality of spirit. Since I have a healing relationship with Christ and his mission, the word Christ does not send me into a revulsion as it does so many who have been wounded by the institution that bears his name. If you ask me, the institution should get another name, since it often has little to do with Christ. I often wonder if the healing message and nature of what we anthroposophists call the Christ impulse could get through all the rigidity, judgmentalism, violence, and hypocrisy of the historical institution, less people would have apoplectic revulsion when presented with the word Christ. But I digress. The Camino as a structure and a movement was up till the 1300s, a great counter to the Roman institutional church. If you can, try and look up a map of the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. For my patrons, you've received a handout with a medieval map of the Spanish routes, as well as a map of the entire continent of Europe. One of the most popular routes to the Camino de Santiago de Compostela is through northern Spain. 
But in actuality, the Camino is an entire network of paths throughout the continent. So what is the Camino, and how did it evolve throughout the centuries? To answer this question, one has to go back to the creation of the Earth, actually. The Earth is quite special indeed. In materialistic terms, the cosmic bursting forth that created our universe birthed the constellations and the planets. What is unique about our planet is that if it had been thrust out a few milliseconds earlier or later or had settled into an orbit just a few miles nearer or farther from the sun, life as we know it could not exist on our planet. In essence, we are the Goldilocks planet. Not too hot, not too cold, just right, and just at the right distance from the sun. Our planet is what happens when stars cool down to just the exact temperature, and all of life, including the soil, our bodies, and nature, has the same elements inside of us as were present in that first galactic event. What is also true spiritually, as well as physically, is that the entire universe was involved in creating Earth. There was a direct relationship between the heavens and the Earth. There was a physical and a spiritual connection, an imprint, so to speak, of the stars and the planets upon the Earth. As humanity and the earth evolved, and humanity chose to distance itself from spirit, metaphysically relayed through the Genesis story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, there was a separation between the spiritual and physical on earth. The imprint of the stars and planets remained, but it was more of an echo of the original experience. As the distance between spirit and matter increased, there were points of contact which were called mystery centers. These were locations where there was still direct communication between the earth and the heavens. The original relationship at these sites was between the initiates and the spiritual world. The Oracle of Delphi is an example, and for you Outlander groupies, the stones where Claire travels through time is another way to look at this. In Neolithic times, thousands of years before Christ, there was great travel between these mystery center sites, which corresponded with the constellations and the planets. Star routes as they were so ingeniously called, were traversed quite regularly for those who sought communication with the spiritual world. One of the most traveled networks was in northern Spain, which is now known as the Camino. By the way, the translation of Camino de Santiago de Compostela is the path of St. James, on the way of the stars. Compostela means 
way of the stars. The Milky Way is the constellation, better termed galaxy, that is imprinted on the Camino. These mystery centers eventually lost direct communication with the spiritual world, but their uniqueness still resonates. The science of geomancy, or as we talked about in the Templar episode, etheric geography, is a remnant of this reality. In a lovely book entitled Sacred Earth, Places of Peace and Power by Martin Gray, it explores this in great detail. The specifics of what modern humans can measure and experience is covered in loving detail in this amazing book. In our last episode on the Knights Templar, we noticed that these individuals were well-versed in astronomy and the relationship between the heavens and the earth. They were also adept at working with etheric geography. The Templars were attuned to the spiritual qualities of the land. We will keep this in mind when understanding the Camino. The Camino, as it is most popularly understood and traveled, that of northern Spain, as well as a path in France that joins the northern Spanish route at one time, thousands and thousands of years ago, was a major route traveled by ancients in search of connections to the heavens and divinity through mystery centers. In Rudolf Steiner's book, Karmic Relationships, Volume Hume 3, there are several lectures speaking about the gradual separation between humans and the divine, specifically how the living knowledge of and relationship between humans and divinity, specifically through our relationship with the spirit of nature, was declining during the period of the Templars. What is of note during this time, from roughly the 1100s through the 1300s, there was a proliferation of cathedrals and also the popularity of the Camino in Europe. St. James the Greater, considered one of the original Twelve Apostles, is credited with trying to evangelize the Iberian Peninsula after the Christ event in Palestine. It is of note that each of the original twelve went to the far reaches of the known world. For instance, the Apostle Mark went to Africa, Thomas went to Asia, and so on. Apparently, James was not having much luck in the Iberian Peninsula. He had a vision of the Virgin Mary who told him he needed to come back to Palestine. This is of note since at the time, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was still alive. Most visions of Mary have occurred well after her death. She appears to him upon a pillar called Nuestra Señora de Pilar, and the pillar still can be visited to this day in the aptly named Basilica of Our Lady of the Pillar in Zaragoza, Spain. 
For whatever reason, or however this vision occurred, James, upon returning to Jerusalem, was promptly beheaded by Herod Agrippa I in 44 AD. As with all extra-biblical accounts of various religious Christian things, the legends are really quite remarkable. According to some legends, his body was taken up by angels, then put in a rudderless, unattended boat that landed in Era Flavia, where a massive rock closed around his remains. The remains were discovered during the time of King Alfonso II of Asturias, Asturias being the region mostly of northern Spain. We need to keep in mind the history of the Iberian Peninsula from the time of the Romans through the age of the Crusades. The Islamic incursion of the peninsula began, also called the Umayyad conquest of Hispaniola. This happened between the years 711 and 718. The Umayyads were quite successful and essentially took over most of the Iberian Peninsula, except for the northern aspect. As you can imagine, this was not taken well by the ruling monarchs of the time, of which there was quite a few, to say the least, in kingdoms which many of us are now unfamiliar. Numerous Christian nation-states of the day joined forces to reconquer the peninsula. It took nearly 700 years, but it was completed by Ferdinand and Isabella, whose uber-Catholic union of Aragon and Castilla got rid of the last caliphate in 1492 with the fall of Granada. Apparently, St. James appeared in the mythical battle of Calavio, where he inspired and fought to expel Muslims. This battle happened sometime in the 700s. The battle cry for about 700 years was St. James and Strike for Spain. In Spanish, it sounds much more romantic, sort of in line with the Princess Bride statement of Mandy Patinkin's character. But I digress. Charlemagne was involved in the reconquest starting in 777, which I find rather interesting if one considers sacred numbers. His battle results were mixed, but mostly successful. A fascinating fact about the Camino is that there were numerous medieval books written on the subject, travel guides, and all sorts of books documenting miracles and legends surrounding the pilgrim path. One of these medieval bestsellers is the Suedo Turpin Chronicle that tells us about Charlemagne and his association with the Camino. According to Suedo Turpin, Charlemagne had a vision of St. James. James showed Charlemagne a map of the star route we now know as the Camino. James told Charlemagne, 
quote, the star route you saw in heaven means you will go to Galatia at the head of a vast army, and after you, all people will take pilgrimage there until the end of time. I will help you, and as compensation for your efforts, I will secure paradise for you from God, and your name will remain in human memory as long as the world exists." Unquote. The legend and history of events goes on to document the conquering of the Islamic occupiers. When Charlemagne comes to Compostela, we are told that he went to the ocean and thrust his spear into the depths as an act of defiance towards his adversaries. This location is called Finisterra, the end of the earth. Since the time of Charlemagne, the Camino has been in existence as a path of Christian pilgrimage for medieval and modern humanity. The Camino was hugely popular in the 11th through the 13th centuries. It fell out of favor, so to speak, during the Black Plague of the mid-1300s, and popular interest essentially died off during the time of the Reformation. The concept of pilgrimage was not as popular during this time. There had been a resurgence in both walkers and popular interest since the 1990s due to movies, documentaries, and also, in my personal opinion, the West's coming to the realization that all the stuff that we purchase is simply not satisfying our inner souls. Now, people go on the Camino less for religious reasons and more for a getting-to-know-oneself experience. For me personally, it is fascinating that there are black Madonnas placed along the Camino. We need to understand that the Camino is not just a couple of well-trodden paths in northern Spain and western France. The Camino is a complete network of shrines and routes throughout Europe, which connect to what we think of as the main route in Spain. For those who are interested, the at the $2 a month patron level, and for those of you who are $2 a month patrons, you have received a couple of maps showing what I mean when I say this. Anyone is welcome to join at any time, and you will receive monographs, resources, and transcripts of the podcast on the Friday after they air. Back to this topic at hand. We will be looking at, in the next segment, some of the more famous Black Madonnas on the Camino and the sacred sites with which they are associated. But for now, note the Black Madonna of Einsiedeln. It is in Switzerland on the Swiss Camino, which is called Jakobsweg. And that very famous lady of Czestochowa, the world-renowned Polish Black Madonna, this lovely shrine is on the Polish Camino, also called Jakobsweg. So what is it about 
this way of the stars that caused so many black Madonnas to be placed there. The age of the Crusades was considered to be the time for the preparation for the age of consciousness soul. And the age of consciousness soul is the one we are in now. In anthroposophical Christology, we understand that before the time of Christ, only an elite few were initiated into the mysteries. The mysteries were deep lessons on the spiritual nature and purpose of the current era. The initiates were given direct communication from the spiritual world. Biblical people such as Moses, Isaiah, and John the Baptist are examples. When Christ came and endured his passion and resurrection, one of the first events to happen upon his death was the rending of the veil in the temple of Jerusalem. This veil separated the Ark of the Covenant from the rest of the temple and could only be seen by high priests. When the veil was torn in two, it exposed the Ark of the Covenant, and symbolically this represented the end of the age of such elite initiates. The rending of the veil indicated that initiation into life's mysteries was not just the realm of the elites, but for everyone from that moment forward. Everyone had and has access to divinity after Christ. Of course, those elites and those in charge were not quite pleased or cooperative about losing their status for sure, and controlling who has access to God has been quite the preoccupation for various groups throughout the 2,000 years since Christ walked the earth in a human body. Recall how I said that the Knights Templar considered the existence of a pope and a king to be the consequence of the fall of man, that Genesis story about Adam, Eve, and the apple. Remember also how I said that when Constantine commanded that Christianity be tolerated, not all Christians at the time were happy about it. Why in the world, you say, would Christians not want to stop the feeding of their friends and family to hungry animals in the Colosseum? Obviously, they wanted the persecutions to stop. But what they did not want was the Romanization or the materialization, the militarization, and the institutionalization of the Jesus movement, as they called their efforts. Romanization meant violent, oppressive hierarchy, which is the opposite of the deep meaning of Christianity. The Templars knew, understood, and wanted to promote the original intent of Christianity. They wanted to create a culture in Europe that could contain what they felt was the true nature of Christ. Something interesting happened with the Templars during the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. During the same year that the Templars were founded, 1118 for those of you who are interested, Alfonso I of Aragon reconquered Zaragoza from the Muslims. 
He is called the Battler, Alfonso the Battler, for good reason, and was quite enamored of warfare in general. He had been raised in a monastery and was not destined to be king, but his elder brother passed away, passing the crown to him. Alfonso fought with the Templars in subsequent battles for the reclaiming of territories in Iberian Peninsula. He also had a very unhappy dynastic marriage with Uraca of Lyon, which produced no heirs, hence the unhappiness. For those of you who think George R.R. R. Martin is a genius storyteller, he has nothing on the real history of the monarchs of Europe, Asia Minor, and the Balkans. With no heirs, Alfonso the Battler left his kingdom to the three religious orders of the day, the Hospitallers, the Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, and the Templars. His wife and younger brother, as you can imagine, were none too happy and challenged the will. The Hospitallers and the Orders of the Sepulchre were not interested in the land, but after intervention of the Pope, the Templars got the Upper Peninsula, which is the location of the Camino. There are several Templar castles that are still standing there today because of this legacy. I find this utterly fascinating when considering how the Templar influence on the Camino, specifically with their placement of Black Madonnas, is evident. There was quite the controversy and battle between the Roman Church and those who were oriented towards the spirituality of the Camino. As I said before, there was a concerted effort to quell the mysteries of Christianity starting in the 4th century with the interference of Constantine. Keep in mind, the great miracle is that anything of value actually got through all the negativity, politics, and intrigue we know as the history of early and earthly Christianity. There is much beauty, truth, and wisdom that has been passed down through the centuries through the organized church but in a muffled form. Much has been distorted for political reasons, and the main reason I feel there is such antagonism towards the organized church. So there are these cosmic truths that Christ taught the disciples and the Apostle Paul tried to convey in the first few centuries after Golgotha. But these got watered down, or in some cases, actually outlawed by the institutional church. In a series I mentioned earlier, Karmic Relationships, Volume 3, by Rudolf Steiner, this volume is one of an eight-part series. Volume 3 is the one I refer to most often, and it's my favorite, mainly because it deals with the incredible era of the age of the great cathedrals. In a lecture of July 13, 1924, Steiner refers to the Camino 
He speaks of how the mysteries of Christianity were receding, but the centers along the northern Camino kept them alive through one of its greatest theologians, Peter of Compostela, who headed up a mystery school focusing on mystery-related Christianity. The Camino was in direct conflict with the Roman Church in this respect. There was a specific ritual associated with the Camino called the Mozarabic Rite and a focus on how spirit manifests in nature or what are called the Natura Mysteries, Mysteries of Transformation. A major theme of this Christian mystery stream was of how divinity manifests in nature and how Christ is at the center of these mysteries of darkness and light, of transformation and the universal quality of his deed. A theme that repeats itself quite frequently all over the world, in fact, is how Christian churches, cathedrals, and shrines are placed on locations of more of a more ancient sacred site. It could be a grove that was sacred to the Druids or an ancient Greek or Roman temple. In many cases, there's been a well or a spring which was originally associated with a dark goddess. There's an interesting story of a Templar church in what is now modern-day Slovenia. In a town called Jerusalem, with a Z, there is a church which the Templars built and placed a Black Madonna brought back from the Crusades. The original Black Madonna was lost in the sands of history, but like many Black Madonnas, sketches and copies were made, so a reproduction was brought to the church and placed in a different location, a special altar, than the original one, which used to be in the center of the church. At the famous Chartres Cathedral outside of Paris, the spring in the crypt was associated with the dark goddess. The theme is very prevalent to the point that it is not merely a coincidence. In these sacred sites, the dark goddess is often known as the goddess of transformation. It is profound that major incidents of growth and transformation occur underground. Christ was laid in a tomb and transformed after three days. The Persephone mysteries of how Demeter, the mother, grieved her separation from the daughter's underground journey, but transformed nature when she returned to her each year. And even in nature, we plant seeds underground and they are transformed and become plants. So we go back to the Camino as a path of modern initiation. The Templars, as we have said before, were students of the relationship between the heavens and the earth. They also understood etheric geography Is it any wonder why they put these statues of Black Madonnas on sacred sites, the remnants of mystery centers along the Camino? 
The Madonna is the symbol of the highest potential of the human soul. The deed of Christ through Golgotha was multi-layered, but essentially it is one of transformation. The earth and the cosmos were transformed by this act, and we humans are to carry it forth to the next level. Our purpose as humans is to help transform the cosmos from a cosmos of wisdom into a cosmos of love. From wisdom, love is born. Out of darkness, wisdom, the template for the future is created. The modern initiation into the mysteries since the time of Christ is life itself. We are all individually and collectively being initiated by life. The path along the Camino is simply one way to participate in this transformative journey, a journey of initiation. The Camino is a path of modern initiation, which was developed by the Templars during the Crusades and the Crusades were a time of the preparation for the age of consciousness soul, the age we are currently in. I think it is very purposeful that the Templars placed the images of Black Madonna along the Camino. These somber, dark images with large hands are placed strategically at the points of the mystery centers. And note, recall, that the color black is the color of cosmic will being transformed into human will. For me, the Black Madonnas have been placed along the Camino for many reasons. To encourage the travelers as reminders of what we are capable of as human beings and as symbols of transformation, of the transformative nature of the earth and how we are agents of the transformation of wisdom into love. It takes a lot of will, a lot of courage to face our times. When one is walking the Camino, it takes a lot of will, a lot of courage to finish the journey. The dark images of the Black Madonna are symbolic of cosmic will being transformed into human will in order to manifest our collective cosmic destinies. The Templars understood the original intent of the Christ mysteries. They wanted European culture to contain the Christ. These were the ideals of the movement. It is the reason I feel they jumped at the chance to inherit the lands of northern Spain and why they chose the Camino, the ancient star route connecting mystery centers, to place these dark images of the Madonna, the highest potential of humanity. Remember, Mary said to Gabriel, 
May your word be fulfilled in me. May these images remind us that we are to embody universal love so it can be fulfilled in us. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Make sure to tune in for the next episode when we will explore the Black Madonnas of Chartres Cathedral in France. Until then, blessings on your journey. <laughs>